0: Hello, I'm Leanne Townsend, a Family Law Lawyer and Chair of the Family Law Group at Mills & Mills LLP. Welcome to Divorcing Well. In this week's episode, we're discussing the really important issue of tax issues in family law. This can sometimes be a complicated issue, but it's a really important one because any financial settlement or um, court proceeding in family law that involves money inevitably has tax consequences. So I'm really happy to have a colleague of mine from Mills and Mills joining me today, a tax lawyer by the name of Sabina Mexis. So welcome to the podcast, Sabina. Thank you. Um, Thank you for coming. Why don't you start off by telling my listeners a little bit about uh, your background and your uh, law practice?
1: Sure. So I'm uh, a tax lawyer. I have been practicing tax law since my call to the bar in 2000. Uh, I specialize primarily in owner-manager taxation. So that's the tax related to individuals um, and their businesses. I have a broad tax practice from tax planning and tax advisory for individuals with respect to either um, estate planning or succession planning of their business. Often if I'm dealing with an owner-manager I will encompass both of those aspects if they're looking to transition their business out to key employees or to the next generation. And then I also provide general tax advice to individuals and corporations with respect to assistance with the CRA if they need it or um, if they have a particular tax question in connection with a particular aspect of, of their business or, or some personal aspect. It's, you know, a very interesting uh, and challenging area of law. It's always changing. And of course, um, it's an area that people tend to not be very interested in in the sense that it can be intimidating. So my job and my role is to try to make it as accessible as possible to people who are who have, uh, tax questions and, and tax concerns.
0: Well, definitely a lot of uh, tax issues do come up in family law. And, you know, I find as a family lawyer, sometimes you have to be a jack of all trades because there can be so many of other other areas of law that we touch upon. And, and I know when there's a more complicated tax situation on a file, you know, where I definitely feel it's outside my, uh, you know, limited expertise on tax law. You know, I have reached out to you on, on a couple of my matters. And you know, just to start with there there are a number of tax issues um, with respect to family law. And one of the first things that comes up um, is spousal support. So can you tell listeners a little bit about um, how spousal support is taxed uh, in, under family law?
1: So if you're the recipient of spousal support, then you must pay tax on the total support that you receive and you are entitled as the recipient to claim a tax deduction on legal fees that you spend to get the monthly spousal support. However, if you receive your spousal support in a lump sum, you are not taxable and you don't get a deduction on any legal fees that you might've spent to um, obtain that lump sum payment. Then um, from the perspective of the recipient of, sp- uh, pardon me, the payer of spousal support, if you're the payor of monthly spousal support, then you get a deduction. So the general rule is inclusion and deduction. So the recipient of spousal support has to include that in their tax return, and the payor gets a deduction for the amount paid, provided that it is a periodic payment. In other words, it's, it's either monthly or some other period that has been established by either by way of agreement or court order. And then there, and similarly, there is no deduction for lump sum payment. So a um, again recipient of a lump sum payment for spousal support does not include that in their tax return, and the payor does not get a deduction for lump sum payments. A payor also cannot claim a deduction on legal fees spent to defend a claim for spousal support.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. And so one of the things that I find comes up on you know, some files is you have a couple who they haven't, you know, they've, they've been separated for a little bit and they, maybe they didn't get counsel right away, or they did get counsel, but they haven't been able to agree on spousal support. And, um, either it hasn't been, you know, they might be disagreeing about whether there's even an entitlement to it. So maybe it hasn't even been paid at all, or the wrong amount is being paid. And I'll run into situations where you know, maybe opposing counsel will want my client to, you know, refile taxes, because they want they they want to be able to, you know, have their client deduct the spousal support, which they weren't doing. And I find it can, you know, it can be a bit of a a mess sometimes if too much time passes. And, this, you know, one party has not been or like both parties have not been claiming it or deducting it the way that it, it can be done. You know, sometimes it can be an issue for someone if they have to go and refile you know, their taxes. And I don't know, is that something you've ever had any involvement in or um, with any of your clients? I I mean, given the work you're doing, I'm not sure that you would, but I'm just asking.
1: Do you mean filing or refiling? of Like
0: refiling. Is that a complicated process if someone has to refile their taxes?
1: Generally, you are entitled to refile or, or it's actually file an amendment to your tax return. Um, It's called a one adjustment and the accountant will assist in in filing a T1 adjustment or if it's relatively straightforward, the taxpayer can probably do it themselves. And essentially, um, there's a few things to keep in mind. One is the tax year should probably still be open for adjustment. So there is a limit. Um, After a certain number of years, tax returns become what's called statute barred. In other words, they're barred from reassessment and they're barred also from um, amendment. And that's usually four years after the filing date or the assessment date. Um, So if a year is statute barred, it is possible to reopen the year. You have to uh, ask CRA to reopen the year and you have to file a waiver, which waiver is a waiver against essentially the statute barred period. If the tax return is too old, the one that's being sought to be amended, it probably there's going to be some difficulty amending that. But as a matter of course, amending generally is is relatively straightforward and it's simply a matter of filing a T1 adjustment to include either the additional income or the additional deductions that you want to uh, report. and, And then it just gets processed in the normal way as a regular tax return does.
0: Yeah, if someone has to do that, does it create any flags with Revenue Canada that they're now going to have to be concerned that they're more on CRA's radar screen and liable to be, you know, reassessed and uh, and you know audited or something like that or is this that not really something to be concerned about?
1: I think it depends on the nature of the adjustment. So, an adjustment that seeks to report previously unreported income that might be significant or material will for sure put um, the person on CRA's radar uh, and pr- potentially flag them for more in-depth uh, review of their tax return. But a tax return or a series of tax returns that are to be adjusted in order to obtain some kind of benefit or advantage in the context of a separation or divorce, say, that won't necessarily increase scrutiny because arguably that's you know not a common occurrence. And so if someone is trying to regularize their tax returns because they're taking a particular position as a consequence of a family law matter, you know, there's always the risk that it will give rise to greater scrutiny. But I would say if it's tied to a particular event that is likely not going to recur or may recur, you know, years and years later, then it probably won't give rise to additional scrutiny.
0: Okay. Um, Now, what about child support? You know, is that treated the same way as spousal support, or is it different?
1: Child support is neither taxable nor deductible. So the recipient doesn't pay tax on child support, and the payor cannot claim a deduction. And that was changed um, in 1997. There was significant changes to the taxation of um, support payments at that time. And prior to that, child support payments were deductible. Um, and they were taxable to the recipient, but now they're neither taxable nor deductible.
0: How about um, you know things like pensions and RRSPs from a tax perspective when they're rolled over to the other spouse as part of a family law settlement? What are some of the you know tax issues that we need to think about, or that a client would need to think about in that type of situation? So
1: generally. Um, rollovers between spouses occur at cost. And and that is um, in the Income Tax Act. It's presumed that transfers between spouses take place at cost, uh, unless the spouses elect out and elect to uh, have the transfer occur at fair market value. So they they might want to elect out for the purposes of recognizing a gain so that the uh, transfer or spouse can um, realize or use a loss, for example, and apply that against the gain or it might be for the purposes of avoiding something called spousal attribution. So in the Income Tax Act, there is a general rule that when assets are transferred between spouses, income that is derived from the transferred asset attributes back to the transfer or spouse. So that's a mouthful. I'll try to break it down a little bit. When <laughs> um, you have, uh, let's say you have an investment property and it earns rental income and the investment property is in the name of one spouse only. And for the purposes of uh, having that income shared between both spouses, the transferor spouse will transfer 50% interest in the property to his uh, or her spouse. We would assume that 50% of the property has been transferred, it transfers on a rollover basis, there's no tax. And then 50% of the income derived from that rental property will now be reported in transferee spouse's uh, tax return. So that's not the way the Tax Act works. As a consequence of spousal attribution, you're no further ahead from an income tax perspective because the transferor spouse continues to be required to report 100% of the income. This is a very common uh, misconception and error that people make on the tax Mm -hmm. side. And it's not related to your question, but I'll get to it in a moment. I often hear people say, I'm going to sell it to my son, daughter, brother, whatever, for a dollar, or I'm just going to make a gift. And I'm going to make a gift of this to my son, daughter, brother, whatever. And there's this presumption that if you, A, that you can sell it for a dollar, which you cannot, and also that if you make a gift, and therefore you have received no consideration for the transfer, that is not taxable. And both of those things are wrong. A gift other than between spouses is a taxable event. The recipient doesn't pay anything to receive the property because it's a gift, but the transferor um, incurs a capital gain on the value of the property being transferred. So it's really important for people to not do their own tax planning and think that they can make gifts and and avoid tax. That's absolutely not correct. Um, and the second also, a transfer for a dollar is not a valid transfer between non-arms length parties. So related parties, you can't sell your house to your son for a dollar. The same tax rules apply. It's deemed to be a disposition at fair market value. And it's particularly scrutinized because it's between non-arms length or related parties. So really, really important for people to who are considering dealing with their assets and think that a transfer of assets for no or low consideration will avoid tax, please disabuse yourselves of that notion that is absolutely not correct. Uh, So don't do do do-it-yourself tax planning in that regard. Now with respect to your question about transfers of pensions and RSPs, there is uh, provisions in the Income Tax Act that do provide for exceptions to both the spousal attribution rule and Uh, tax that might result on a transfer of registered or other assets where they occur on separation or divorce. So on an equalization payment or a payment pursuant to either a separation agreement or a court order, the assets that otherwise would have been taxable um, can be transferred in satisfaction of that equalization claim without giving rise to tax consequences. So to the extent that an RSP, for example, is one of the key assets that's being transferred over on separation or divorce, uh, it can be transferred as part of that equalization payment without triggering tax. And um, there there are exceptions to the rules uh, for attribution and otherwise for these kinds of equalization transfers.
0: One of the common things that... Uh... I see, come up with clients is, you know, when sometimes they don't always agree on the date of separation, or, you know, they may agree on it, but they don't, when they file their tax returns, they don't, you know, claim that they're separated, or maybe one person does and the other doesn't. And, um, you know, then down the road, you end up in front of a judge and you have a client who has tax returns saying, you know, they weren't separated on a certain date, and he or she's been trying to argue they were. So tell, I guess, if you could let listeners know a little bit about the importance of, you know, your tax information being, you know, accurate and how a court would look at a situation like that where you, you know, if someone's filed something with the government, such as a tax return, you know, the persuasive value of that uh, in their case.
1: We're a self-assessing and a self-reporting tax system here in Canada, which means that uh, you are, for the most part, responsible for filing your tax returns and for filing them accurately and reporting the information accurately and completely. That being said, though, a separated uh, couple who perhaps one files is married and one files is separated, so a few things will happen. The first is the CRA will likely take a look at these two returns and see that the person filing as married, it doesn't correspond to the person filing um, as separated. Because when you file as married, you have to put the other spouse's um, name and social insurance number on your tax return. So immediately they will be cross-checked and there will be questions raised as to why they're being filed um, separately. Like from from the perspective of the persuasive nature, there's a lot of commentary certainly in in tax law and i'm sure it's the same in family law of substance over form and so you know form does not necessarily govern where the substance of the arrangement indicates that there really was a sep- a different intention than what was re- reflected in the forms that were filed so i think as in any you know trial matter if it were to come before a judge and someone was to take a particular position that they had filed in a particular manner, I don't think that would be necessarily determinative of the issue. I think any hearer of a first instance would look at what is it that was really the nature of the relationship between the parties, what was intended, and what actually accurately reflects the relationship between the parties.
0: For sure. And I mean, and I would just add to that, I mean, certainly it would help if your tax return is consistent with your position in an ideal world. You know, as a lawyer, I definitely prefer my client to be in that situation. But if they're not, you know, the things you just mentioned, 100% would be taken into account. So it doesn't have to necessarily be determinative. One of the other issues that, you know, I see coming up is, you know, sometimes I will get a client who you know, was perhaps in a more traditional marriage where she stayed at home and raised children and husband was the breadwinner and, um, you know, worked outside the home and perhaps had businesses or multiple businesses. And she didn't really know what's going on with the cash flow. And he, you know, his, he was doing their joint tax returns and, you know, all of that. Um, And then we get to separation and that, you know, she finds out that, unknown to her, her husband has a huge tax liability that he, you know, he hasn't been filing tax returns, or perhaps he has a business and he hasn't been submitting, you know, HST and, and things like that. And now they're doing their financial statements and, you know, he's showing, she thought they, had, you know, they got this house and she thought they had all this, these assets and she'd be getting this huge equalization payment. And it's much lesser non-existent because he has all this tax debt that she didn't know about. First of all, I guess, if, if your spouse has tax debt, yeah. how does that affect you?
1: So generally it does not. and And there are, of course, you know exceptions to that, but we'll, we'll speak about the general principle first. There are provisions in the CRA that do assess third-party liability for somebody else's tax debt, um, and that's under Section 160 of the Income Tax Act or Section 325 of the Excise Tax Act, which deals with GST. So there are mechanisms that the CRA can use to try to collect from another person for someone else's tax debt. But there are certain things that have to be met in order for that the CRA to have that power. So we'll talk about, first, the broad powers of, of the CRA in, in general. So the CRA does have broad collection powers to enforce the repayment of a tax debt. Uh, so they can seize and sell property. They can garnish bank accounts. They can lien a real property and so on, and they don't require judicial authorization to do that. Those powers are in the Income Tax Act. So, to the extent that the tax debtor has assets, the CRA has broad powers to seize those assets for the purposes of collecting on the tax debt. So, where a uh, spouse potentially faces liability is where the tax debtor transfers assets to someone else, either the, the, the spouse or, or a third party, um, to try to rid themselves of assets so that the CRA can't seize upon those assets. So again, just to kind of recap, CRA has broad collection and enforcement powers to seize a person's assets if they have a tax debt. If a person moves those assets to, uh, out of their own name, for the purposes of avoiding collection or seizure seizure actions on the part of the CRA, then that is where the transferee, whether it's a spouse or another person, is potentially subject to CRA enforcement under Section 160 of the Income Tax Act. And for that section to apply, there really has to have been a transfer. Made from one spouse to the other spouse for the purpose of avoiding a, a CRA debt. Usually, um, if the surviving—sorry, oh, not the surviving spouse—if the other spouse doesn't uh, know about the existence of the debt, then generally they can try to claim a defense, a due diligence defense, to say that they didn't have any knowledge. It it's, will be difficult for them to to claim that defense, but. It certainly is possible, it's not an absolute, uh, it's not a section that that provides an absolute um, hammer as far as uh, trying to seize the the tax debt uh, and the the property that's been transferred. Now there are exceptions to transfers that are done in the context of an equalization under uh, family law. Section 160 and 325 of the Excise Tax Act allow property to be transferred to a spouse if it's done in the context of a proper separation or divorce agreement. So that's the first thing that's important. Um, The agreement has to be in writing and agreed to by both parties in order for it to be effective. And of course, that's pretty standard, I assume, as far as separation agreements or court orders. The property can be transferred in accordance with a separation agreement or a court order. Um, If So assets can be transferred even though there might be an existing tax debt to the extent there is a proper agreement in place that allows that transfer. That will uh, happen outside of the ambit of Section 160. So the the separating spouse can receive that without falling under the the seizure provisions of Section 160. If, uh, If the transfers are done prior to an agreement being in place, they're not going to have that same protection. So the agreement has to be in place and then the transfer can can be made. But really absent concurrence of the other spouse or knowledge of the other spouse of the circumstances surrounding the transfers of property, if they're not subject to an agreement, um, the CRA is going to have to prove that the transfer was done with the intention to defeat the creditor. So it's similar to, in a bankruptcy context, the fraudulent conveyance type of um, uh, situation where transfers are made with the concurrence of the transferee for the purpose of avoiding a creditor. In a traditional, I would assume in a more traditional relationship, as you've described, the transferee spouse would probably be successful in claiming that she didn't have knowledge of, of the tax debt. Um, It's the same sort of circumstances that arise where someone is named as a director, for example, on a corporation that might have significant GST debt or source deductions that are unremitted. In those kind of circumstances also, and I have seen this quite a bit, the husband might be the uh, owner operator, but the wife is on as director and officer, even though really she doesn't do anything and has no knowledge of the business operations. Similarly, in those kinds of circumstances, while a director can be personally liable for unremitted GST and unremitted source deductions of a corporation, where the director is able to claim a due diligence defense and and indicate that, you know, she really didn't have any knowledge um, and and was simply a figurehead director, um, then she won't be personally assessed for those unremitted GST or unremitted source deductions. Uh, but again, as in all things tax, it's very, very fact um, dependent. You know, the general principles are simply a starting point, And then, of course, we will apply those depending upon the specific facts uh, attributable to the, the particular situation.
0: Now, if someone's out there listening and, you know, they're concerned that, you know, m- maybe they could end up in one of these types of situations, how can somebody protect themselves from you know potential exposure to tax liability of their spouse?
1: One of the best ways that someone can protect themselves, and again, I see it all the time, and I'm sure you do as well, even you know in this day and age, there could be things like, you know, as you say, uh, spouses are perhaps in a traditional type of relationship, a traditional marriage wherein the the wife stays at home and the husband is the breadwinner. Wife may not have a lot of formal education. There might be a language barrier. Um, documents are put in front of the spouse to sign. Um, she doesn't have independent legal advice. That's probably the number one way that somebody can protect themselves. They really shouldn't be signing anything um, that they don't understand, and they certainly shouldn't be signing anything if they don't understand it um, and and it potentially has significant financial ramifications without independent legal advice you know there there are certainly resources available in many languages um, in you know for, for people who might be in a lower uh, income situation where they're concerned about the cost of legal advice. So there are resources available where people can receive assistance if they are concerned about signing documents that they don't understand. That's probably the best way that someone can protect themselves. But often, you know, these situations arise where a document's put in front of a wife by a husband or put in front of a parent by a child, and, and they just don't really have the wherewithal to fully understand and comprehend the contents of the document. I would say if in doubt, reach out to someone and, and, and try to get some measure of legal advice um, on, on what is being uh, put in front of the person to sign. And then with respect to tax matters, fortunately, and, and I'm not an advocate of do-it-yourself legal advice. You know, we have all Googled things in an attempt to try to save money. And I understand that legal advice can be expensive. The flip side of that is on the tax side, there is actually quite a lot of good, reliable advice out there, particularly on the CRA's website. So if someone does have a tax question and they're they're not sure about the tax result of a particular um, ac- action that they might want to take, they may not understand the full content of, of what is on the CRA's website, but there is quite a lot of high quality information that can at least form a starting point for someone if, if they are if they do have a tax question and they are concerned about doing something and the tax implications of that. I would suggest start there and, and take a look at what's on the CRA's website. The other caveat with information that one finds through a Google search is the currency of that information. Tax laws change all the time. So if you see an article from 2017 or 2018 or 2019, and you're reading that article and you think you can rely on that as being an accurate statement of the law, be mindful of the fact that between 2019 and 2022, there could have been, first of all, we have a budget every year and tax laws change every year uh, at budget time. Sometimes the changes are quite significant, sometimes the changes are minor, but they change nonetheless. So in 2021 uh, or 2022, an or a tax article with a date of 2017, 18 or 19 will likely be out of date and not properly reflective of the state of the law. So be really careful of any documents. You know, Again, as a starting point, Google searches are fine, uh, but they certainly are not to be relied upon you know, of course, are no substitute for proper tax and legal advice.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can't stress that last point enough, because I find it, you know, in my practice area, so many people do their Google searches, and they come in, and they think that they know something or have an understanding of something. And they they really don't, uh, just based from the Google search. And, you know, and I think I want to reiterate as well, like, we're not saying you know, don't trust your spouse, but you know, you should never sign any sort of document that you don't understand. And, you know, if your spouse respects you, then they're going to respect that you have a need to understand what you're signing. And it doesn't, it's not showing that you don't trust them. It's just showing that you're being smart and you're, you know, exercising your right to, to be able to understand, you know, something that you're putting your signature to. So, you know, don't be intimidated, um, you know, by your spouse, because if your spouse is doing that, then that should be a flag to you that there's a problem here, you know, in the marriage to begin with.
1: And I just want to, on that point about signing documents that you don't understand, when one signs a tax return, uh, the taxpayer in signing the tax return, acknowledges and affirms that they the contents are accurate, and that they represent an accurate portrayal of their income situation for that year. You cannot say that you didn't understand your tax return when you signed it. It is not a defense. So that's really important is that yes, taxes are complicated. Yes, most people don't like it. And I acknowledge both of those things. I've been doing tax a long time. But it is not a defense to say you didn't understand it. If you don't understand it, don't sign it. And that goes for your tax return. That goes for any document. Resources are available. Reach out. Try to find some help. Go to your local community center if you have a um, language barrier. Find someone who can assist you in your particular language if that's an issue. But seek, at least preliminarily seek, resources and assistance if you are if something's put in front of you, you, decide that you don't understand.
0: Now, we've discussed a variety of issues. Are there any other tax related issues uh, that relate to family law that um, you think we should mention to listeners that I have not brought up?
1: Well, I mean, there's always going to be issues that arise in the family law context depending on sometimes it's unraveling uh, errors that you know have come before it by People thinking that they, you know, know what they're doing and and put someone's name on a document or uh, which and it often arises in the context of family business. So actually, let's talk about family business for a moment. Many people have private businesses, whether they're incorporated or sole proprietorships or otherwise. Sometimes the the separating spouse um, is either not a party to the the business or They are named on the business, but they have no involvement. So we talked about that before as somebody being listed as a director or officer, but really not having any um, management control or involvement in the business. The flip side of that argument with respect to family businesses is having an equalization being made where shares of a family business are transferred to the separating spouse. Uh, I have seen this very, very frequently where now we have a circumstance where the separating spouse is a shareholder and has equity in the business and the person who's actually running the business really doesn't want to be in partnership with their ex-spouse. So there's a few ways that that can be dealt with. One is that the structure and sometimes an equalization of assets of the corporation is appropriate, depending on both the nature of the corporation and and the size of the equalization payment that's being made, Um, you can structure the transfer such that the type of shares being issued to the separating spouse are fixed value shares that don't participate, they don't have voting rights, they can be restricted in terms of um, their attributes so that even though the separating spouse may be a shareholder, their rights as a shareholder are limited. And that should also probably be covered in a shareholders' agreement or in the separation agreement itself, or both, depending on, again, the, the quantum that's involved. You know, we shouldn't overlook having to equalize family businesses uh, and, and the consequences of such equalization, uh, because just from a practical perspective, a separating spouse who has shares of a family business corporation could potentially pledge those shares as collateral. They could potentially have those shares be seized by his or her creditors. And that creates problems for the person who is in fact running the business. Uh, So that could become uh, messy. uh, Again, if, if a family business is being equalized on separation or divorce. So proper planning is important there to ensure that Um, There are ways to structure it and there are ways to ensure that we don't have to necessarily liquidate assets to pay out a surviving uh, separating spouse. You have to be mindful of of the business um, implications of having a separating spouse be essentially a a shareholder or partner in, in your business post separation or divorce.
0: Sure. I mean, it's definitely uh, you know I I know with a lot of settlements that I get involved with with clients, like the tax implications are always you know very much a part of of any of them, and so it's really important when some for listeners out there that if you're you know working towards a settlement with your spouse that. You make sure that um, your lawyer is, you know, taking into account the tax implications of, you know, different scenarios, and so sometimes it can be helpful to, you know, bring in um, a tax lawyer or someone with tax expertise to to review a settlement proposal and give their advice on you know, the tax implications or how there might be a better way of structuring it that would have less tax implications and, and all of that. So um, it, it can be a, a really crucial component. And you don't want to have a settlement where that wasn't properly taken into account and then get a surprise, you know, tax bill that you weren't anticipating.
1: Absolutely. And, and that applies to both the transferor and the transferee. Oftentimes, the transferee will obtain the assets free and clear, and the tax result uh, is in the transferor's hands. So we have to be mindful of um, the tax on both sides, because usually the tax will arise from the disposition by the transferor spouse, and structuring that to avoid triggering tax to the transferor spouse is important usually the transferee spouse won't bear um, tax liability as much as the transferor.
0: One last question I have for you is, you know, often when people think of taxes, they think of accountants and, you know, let me speak to my accountant, let's get, bring an accountant in on this. So what would be the difference between when someone would need an, the advice of an accountant versus the advice of a tax lawyer?
1: It, It depends. I, I have worked with many, many, very, Uh, highly qualified and um, proficient tax accountants. Uh, So what I mean by that is they um, work in structuring settlements, uh, in structuring reorganizations. They have a very uh, profound and deep knowledge of how to uh, arrange tax affairs that go beyond simply tax preparation many accountants are tax preparers. So in other words, they prepare tax returns, they prepare financial statements, they um, are aware of and are involved in reporting the tax status of an individual and or a corporation uh, annually. So tax return preparation and the analysis of the Income Tax Act with respect to a particular tax result are sometimes mutually exclusive. I've dealt with many excellent tax preparers who do not have in-depth knowledge on the tax consequences of a particular proposed transaction, for example. Depending on the type of accountant um, and the proficiency of the accountant, uh, it usually uh, we can use a tax accountant for both the tax advice, as well as the filings that are required. But generally, an accountant is used for uh, filing. So filing tax returns, filing election forms, filing um, changes to uh, tax returns, preparation of financial statements, and so on. Uh, And a tax lawyer does not do the filing part, but will do the research and analysis and proposal with respect to taking a particular tax position Um, And of course, tax lawyers and tax accountants work work hand in hand, because if we are trying to structure a particular transaction, we want to know what the financial statements say, whether we can take advantage of losses, for example, and structure a transaction in such a way that it does achieve a, a particular tax benefit. Usually, the distinction between a tax lawyer versus a tax accountant is The accountant is the preparer and filer of the returns and ancillary documents. And the tax lawyer uh, does research and analysis and uh, suggests a particular tax position or will advise on the tax result of a contemplated
0: transaction. I guess one of the other um, differences, as I understand it, too, is that if a client of yours um, gets the advantage of solicitor client privilege, whereas with an accountant, they do not. So if they're, I guess, wanting to look at maybe different scenarios or they're in a bit of a predicament, say with Revenue Canada, when they come to you, the conversation is going to be kept, is going to be confidential.
1: That's right. And, and that's an excellent point. And uh, um, often what I will do in circumstances where Um, We might be doing a voluntary disclosure, for example, where a person has undeclared income from prior years or unfiled returns from prior years, and they want to now file those returns and come up to date. They can do so under the CRA's Voluntary Disclosure Program. If the disclosure is particularly preparation or compliance heavy in that it involves the preparation of multiple returns over multiple years, uh, the client will retain me. I will retain the accountant such that privilege is then preserved with respect to all the um, correspondence between myself, the client and the accountant. So that is certainly something that is important where the client is potentially concerned about privilege and and retaining confidentiality vis-a-vis communications between the accountant and and the client. They can do so by way of the lawyer retaining the accountant on that particular matter.
0: That's good to know. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Sabina. You've been like a wealth of information, and uh, I think it's it's such helpful information for listeners. If there is someone out there who could use the services of a tax lawyer, how can they best find you?
1: So the best way to find me is, of course, through Mills & Mills website. So that's millsandmills.ca. Um, My direct phone number is 416-682-7065 and my email is sabina.mexis at millsandmills.ca. Yes, feel free to reach out. Again, the best way is probably just to go to Mills and Mills website, click on tax and you'll find me and then reach out and happy to assist. I can refer to accountants if there are questions that involve tax return preparation or or filings uh, of uh, delinquent or incorrect uh, returns. Yeah, I'm certainly happy to assist with tax questions um, of, of any listeners out there. And of course, always happy to continue to assist you, Leanne, and the Family Law Group at Mills.
0: Well, thank you so much. And thanks for joining me today. And thank you to my listeners. Please like, subscribe, review, and join me here again next week on Divorcing Well.
1: Hi, my name is Janet Finaki, and I'm the host of the Resilient People podcast. I interview regular people from around the world who've experienced something major in their lives, bounced back, and found a purpose in helping others be resilient too. They're folks like you and me, and their stories are totally relatable, extraordinary, and inspiring.
0: I had no idea what I could do until I did it. But it's the motivation of doing for other people that you know need support, need help that you're able to really push and dig and find what you can do. Have an open discussion and not write us off and allow us to actually talk about our disability. Like don't assume my limits Mm -hmm. for me. You know, we went for a drive, told her what her mom was going through and what the likely outcome is going to happen. And we both just bawled. And then finally, Kate just said that we need to have hope and to be resilient, you you have to have hope.
1: Join me as we get to know some incredibly resilient people. The Resilient People Podcast is everywhere you get your podcasts. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode.
0: Thank you for joining me on Divorcing Well. If you have any separation or divorce questions, you can get in touch with me via my website at www.leannetownsend.ca.